Colossians 2, 13 to 19. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over them by the cross. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not anyone... Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So how do you evaluate spirituality? What measure can you use to assess a person's spiritual well-being? We live in an age which is obsessed with finding objective, measurable criteria that you can use to assess everything. And spirituality is no exception. There are apparently two main ways of measuring the components of spirituality. There is the Spiritual Orientation Index, which uses 85 measurements to assess things like transcendence, meaning and purpose in life, mission in life, the sacredness of life, material values, altruism, idealism, awareness of the tragic, and spiritual fruit. Or there is the Expressions of Spirituality Inventory, which uses a hundred different assessments to measure attitudes towards and beliefs about spirituality, spiritual, mystical and transcendent experiences, a sense of meaning and purpose in life, belief in the paranormal, religious beliefs, attitudes and practices. Spirituality is a multifaceted concept. My spirituality is probably going to look very different to yours. And the trouble is, we, we like what we know, and some of us know what we like. And if we, if we bump into a spirituality that, that's different to ours, we can get hang-ups over that. Who are these people? What do they really believe? Can they be Christians? The way they behave? When I was a fairly young Christian, I, I became a Christian in a, in a lively, charismatic Baptist church which ran a Sunday school in the neighbouring town. And they said, well, you, you want to go along and, and, and kind of get involved there and lend a hand. And that Sunday school was run by a very dedicated team of people who were not in to lively worship in any way, shape or form. And we're thinking, what kind of Christians are these? I remember in one church, a guy who was always a little bit on the fringe of things, he went to France and visited Taizé. 
And he came back and he was full of what an amazing spiritual experience he'd had there and how that really connected with him. Somebody else said it all sounded a bit like mumbo-jumbo to them. Well, I think of one very good friend in another church who always said, if the organ hadn't been played that morning, I haven't been able to worship today, because as far as she was concerned, worship involved singing hymns to the organ, and she couldn't relate to anything else. I can see some of you nodding, yeah. (laughs) We're all different, and that's how God made us. When we look at each other and see those differences and start to be a little bit critical sometimes because their spirituality doesn't conform to ours, that's where we start to bump into problems and difficulties. And it was happening in Colossae. Because whereas Jesus unites everybody, religion divides people. Paul's quite explicit. He addresses the problem. We don't quite know what was going on in Colossae, but clearly something was wrong. And he says to them, don't let anybody judge you. And he goes on to list a whole host of different criteria that people seem to have been using to assess whether or not that person is really spiritual enough or not. So some people were using food and drink as a measure to judge others by. Those people sitting the other side of church, did they observe the Jewish food laws properly or not? Were they adhering to rigid standards of purity when it came to storing liquids or drinking out of cups? Were people scrupulous in making sure that the food they ate didn't come from an animal that had been sacrificed in a pagan ritual? Or could they be confident that the wine that they were drinking hadn't come from a batch that had been dedicated in some kind of religious ceremony to another deity. There were people who had real hang-ups over this kind of stuff and had problems with people who just dismissed all that as stuff that was irrelevant. None of us have those kind of hang-ups today. Though there is the, the question about to what extent you know meat should be halal and we should know whether it's halal meat or not. It begins to be an issue in today's culture. But we might look at people who dine out in expensive restaurants and think, how on earth, as Christians, can they justify the cost of that? Or there are some people who feel passionately about the environment and say, if you're really serious about your concern for the creation, you should be vegetarian. Because all the the consumption that's involved in growing animals just to satisfy our craving for meat is disproportionately high. And if you're going to be serious about your commitment, we all should be vegetarians, actually. What's your opinion of people who enjoy a bottle of wine or go out down the pub on a Saturday night? You might never do that. It might not be a problem for them. But if they're different to you and have different standards and attitudes and values, don't don't judge them for that. That's not our place. That's not our role. And equally, don't let anybody look down on you if you found your own spiritual equilibrium, whether that involves the consumption of or the abstention from certain kinds of food or drink. These things are peripheral, actually. Then what about religious festivals, new moon celebrations or Sabbath days? How will you observe Lent this year? What are you going to do? What are you going to give up? 
How are you going to mark this traditional Christian time of year? And does it really matter if you don't? It's the new moon this time next week. The new moon was a Jewish festival and they observed it in various ways. People these days, at the new moon, use some kind of ritual to recalibrate their energy. All sounds a little bit new age. If you're into that kind of stuff, does that mean that you can't be a Christian as well? How many of you, how many of you are going to pop down the shops on your way home from church this morning? How many of you are Sabbath breakers? Are you breaking the fourth commandment and is that incompatible with Christian commitment? Some people in some parts of the country would still feel very strongly about that. But if we start to judge each other along those lines, are we then placing ourselves in the wrong because of our attitude and state of mind towards those we don't see eye to eye with? All this religious stuff really is nothing more than insubstantial shadows, says Paul. The reality, the body, the substance, the only thing that matters is about Christ, the body of Christ. And what matters is not how you worship him, but that we worship him together in spirit and in truth. But different styles of worship actually can be a little bit divisive sometimes. Paul goes on to talk about humility. The LRA talks about false humility. But that in itself is passing a value judgment on what people were doing there in Colossae. The problem may not have been that their practice of self-denial was insincere, but rather these kind of ascetic people who spent a lot of time fasting and praying were looking at other people who didn't fast and didn't pray as much as they should and were saying, well, you know... Why aren't they doing their bits? I don't see their Christian commitment. I don't see their spirituality. I don't see their holiness. And Paul says that kind of attitude is not on. It's not appropriate to judge each other in that kind of way. Well, what about people who are banging on about worshipping angels? People have written PhDs of what Paul might have meant there. The language is notoriously difficult to pin down. But it looks like there may have been some people there who through the practices of fasting and praying had some kind of ecstatic experience in worship and felt that they'd been taken up to and across the threshold of heaven itself and had seen the angels worshipping God. Such was the, the mind-blowing extent of their spiritual experience. And they were so enthralled about it, they couldn't stop talking about it. And if you hadn't had that kind of experience, well, maybe you'd never really experienced what real worship was all about. And, and Paul says the danger in that kind of scenario is that you end up Chasing the experience, worshipping the experience of worship, rather than worshipping God in whatever way happens to be in your path at that point in time. And in, in, in thinking that, well, you know, I've had this experience and you haven't, and therefore you have a certain distance to go before you catch up with me, that really is not a spiritual attitude at all. It's just the attitude of a self-inflated ego whose mindset is fundamentally unspiritual, fleshly, is the term that Paul uses. Human nature being what it is, it's always difficult when we encounter a style of worship 
that's uncongenial to us. It distracts us. We end up focusing on the people around us or on what is going on rather than asking for God's grace to enable us to worship him in a setting that actually we're not finding comfortable. This was brought home to me once quite vividly and powerfully when I was up for a Baptist Union Assembly, which is kind of National Gathering of Baptists in London, and we were in a session there, and it was dire. I have to say, they were using kind of worship from different parts of the world, and it was just awful, awful, and I felt like writing a letter complaining about it. And I'm so glad I didn't, because the next week there was a letter from a friend of mine saying how wonderful, how wonderful he thought it was. One man's meat is definitely another man's poison. And if we see someone worshipping in a way that we can't relate to, the trap is to think, well, I can't, I can't, I can't see how they could possibly be worshipping that kind of way. But they are. It doesn't relate to you, but don't deny them the genuine nature of their experience. So worship myths that need to be busted. It's not true to say that you need to go to Soul Survivor to find the best worship in the world. It's not true to say that all the best hymns are found in the Green Baptist Hymn Book. It's not true to say that real worship can only be spirit-led if it's spontaneous. Attitudes, attitudes, attitudes. What matters is not the style, but whether in whatever setting we find ourselves, we are seeking to worship Christ. And as we do that, we are shaped and moulded into the body of Christ Together, Christ unites us where worship may not. What matters, says Paul, is the body of Christ. All of us, as we are connected to him, worshipping in different ways, but we find our unity in him. And the danger is that if we get hung up on worship and our own experience of worship or finding fault with how other people worship, we are in danger of losing touch with Christ ourselves. Because if we're focusing on worship rather than on him, we're missing the point. He is the head of the whole body of the church. And it's as we are connected to him that we are part of the body and we grow together as God causes us to grow. But for that to be the case, we need to be connected to Christ and to each other through all the joints and ligaments that hold the body together and are channels through which the head nourishes the rest of the body. Worship is not. It can sometimes be an individual experience, but actually it's a corporate experience. We come here and we are joined together as members of the body of Christ in all our diversity as we worship God in whatever means is happening in that particular service. Paul wouldn't have got a degree in human physiology talking about the whole body being joined together and nourished from the head through all the joints and ligaments. But you get the point. It's as we are joined together that we are nourished by Christ and we grow together. But if we detach ourselves from what is going on around us because it's not giving us the spiritual high that we're looking for or because we feel inclined to criticise and pass judgement of what's going on, then in that detachment from worship, we are in danger of severing our spiritual connection with Christ as well. We seek to worship Jesus together in whatever is going on. Because Paul envisages worship as a corporate thing, something in which we all participate, and rightly so, because it has the power to unite us in one spirit. And it's as we worship Christ together that we grow 
in Christ together. Because Jesus is the real thing that unites us all. And that goes for all of us. It goes for your emotional charismatics and your stiff upper lip four, four time hymn singers. Those whose spirits are lifted when the drums are played and those who value silence and stillness. Those of us who sign ourselves with the cross or those who lift our hands in worship. Those who during Lent will go out for Sunday lunch and rejoice in God's goodness over a bottle of wine and those who will quietly practice a regime of abstinence and self-denial. All of us belong together in the multifaceted, diverse, challenging company of people who are the church, the body of Christ. A church which unites everybody. Died in the world traditionalists and lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender Christians, the issue the Anglican Church is grappling with at the moment. All of us united together in the body of Christ, sometimes struggling to figure out how that works in practice. At this table, all of us welcome, without regard for colour, gender, social standing, where we live, education, sexual orientation, criminal record, Moral failure. All of us welcome together at this table because Jesus invites us and he's the host and he's the one who welcomes us. And we worship Jesus who is saviour to us in our brokenness. That's why he laid his life down for us on the cross. We welcome Jesus, we worship Jesus who welcomes and gives his Holy Spirit without distinction to anyone who calls on his name. And it's as those who call on his name that we are bound together in his body. What matters is the body of Christ. And we are united in worship, whatever form of expression that might take. Here, round this table, as we share the same bread and as we drink the wine which though it's in individual cups came out the same container each of us sharing in bread and wine each of us sharing in Christ who is the head of the body and each of us sharing with each other as we are connected to each other through the ligaments and sinews of love and grace here In the simple act of eating bread and drinking wine, we worship Jesus, who welcomes each of us and all of us and unites us together in his body. Let's join together in singing, O breath of God. Come fill this place, revive our hearts to know your grace. And from our slumber make us rise, that we may know the risen Christ. Let's stand and sing this together.